Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm joined here by Dr. Jim Lowe. Talk about global affairs. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great, Matthew. Thanks for the invitation to join you. Well, I'm excited to dive into this topic. We were both together in Australia, and it sounds like we both have been dealing with Europe a bit here lately. And and on Australia, you did a topic around Australia and around global affairs and China and Argentina. And so I'm excited to dig into this. To lead off, just with Australia, can you talk about what some of your takeaways were from from that event, we were at the APM Animal Health Conference there, and, and we both did some talks. What, what was your big takeaway? Yeah, so I was trying, I've had the good fortune to be there three or four times now, and it's it's a really interesting industry to me because they don't import any animals or genetics. And so on the pig side, that's they really haven't brought anything since the 70s, so it's all been local improvement. It's a very closed market. They don't import pork meat. So very, very different market than ours. Um, and really kind of insulated from many of the global trends. Uh, you know, they produce their own wheat, they're a wheat exporting country, et cetera, et cetera. I think the big interesting bit to me about Australia is, is their market structure. So they sell pigs directly to retail. So Woolworths is one of their big retailers, as an example. They sell directly to their contract is with the retailer. And mm-hmm. then the retailer pays the packer to toll kill those pigs. So I think that's a really fascinating idea. It's basically a cost-plus market because it's captive. They export very, very little out of out of Australia. Uh, I think you have an opportunity to export a lot more, but quite frankly, have been so successful locally, they don't really need to. Uh, that whole industry is a couple hundred thousand sows, um, you know, 230, 40,000 sows, something like that. I give them a hard time that yeah. all you were in the room and you're, you're not even like the third largest producer in the U.S., but... <laughs> But um, so different scale, but very progressive producers. Um, genetics obviously have not kept up because of not introducing global genetics today. But everything else really have led the world. I mean, I know you spent some time in Europe uh, recently, and really the Australians been on the front end of that. What do we do with yeah. welfare? And you know, they raise pigs outside or in hoops. Um, uh, like ten thousand sows outside. Like we're yeah. talking serious operations outdoors. Yes. Like, yeah, it's, 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 a so it's, it's some really interesting things and certainly lovely people. And, um, everybody asked me how you describe Australia. And I said, it's like the UK and the US had a bad love child. Uh, they drive on the wrong side of the road with their crazy Americans. And so it's all good. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, the worst part is, right, you get used to, you're down there and you get used to working on the left and all of a sudden you come back and then you're on the wrong elevator and everything else or the wrong escalator and everything else for the, for three weeks. But Even uh, walking given... on the sidewalks was a, was a challenge because here I'm on the wrong side of the sidewalks constantly. And <laughs> oh, and you speak about the genetics. A fun story just for people listening because you probably wouldn't have heard it unless you actually went there or talked to somebody from Australia. 
but somebody's actually doing serious jail time because they snuck Danish semen through a shampoo bottle into Australia. Yes. Created a, a way better herd. The government figured out that there was no way Australian genetics was going to give them as many pigs per sow per year as they had. They did some research and yeah, they figured out that they smuggled in semen and now they're in jail. They're in prison. Like that's serious. Yeah, they are, they are not. And right. And that's, it's, it's all about biosecurity because what they don't want to do is drag. It's basically, you know, they're, they're quote, quote, disease free, except they have the terrible diseases like APP. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I, I think I'd get rid of that guys. Uh, but, um, so it's that, and it's really this flora and fauna, right? You, when we went in and out of the country, right? It's really interesting the amount of scrutiny you get. Uh, when I wrote down veterinarian on my import card, right? When or the, whatever that is before you come in, which I don't think it probably qualifies a veterinarian anymore, but what the heck? I'll, I'll, I'll fake it once in a while. I mean, they run you through the ringer. They just assume yes. that I said, Oh, I haven't been around pigs in forever or whatever. Said, no, no, no. You, you're going to go through and get asked all the questions. And so I think much more serious than what we are about about biosecurity from that standpoint. Yeah, when I was there, I had the opportunity to go to a, uh, a sow farm that was considered to be be one of the better ones in the country and saw freedom farrowing. And I'd never, I mean, I'd seen the turnaround crates and stuff like that, but I'd never really did the whole, like, whole sow farm freedom farrowing. And I am glad that I did that because when we went to... Europe and Euro tier, that was a huge topic, but we're, we're sitting in the South farm in, in Australia and they have workers in every room. So that way they could save late on pigs 24 seven. But I was very shocked how I could walk into a pen, mess with the piglets and the sow wasn't going to do anything. So I think one of the things I had in the back of my mind that would make freedom farrowing nearly impossible was the actual sow's demeanor, but that proved me wrong. But you still have a footprint issue. You have all these other issues. But when I went to Europe and Euro tier, it had to have been like four four dozen companies with freedom farrowing concepts. It it is insane how quickly that's blowing up in Europe, Australia, and some of these other countries, making me nervous. Yeah, as as old people shudder when you hear that word because we remember doing that years ago. Like I yeah. farrowed sows that way. Um, we didn't call it freedom farrowing. We just called it huts. Uh, and the South were not docile. I can just, I've started practice yeah. in Henry County, Illinois, the hog capital of the world. And in the 1990s, they were still farrowing outside. And I spent more than one afternoon sitting on top of a hut because that big old spotted sow wanted nothing to do with me getting down after I'd monkeyed with her pigs. But, um, let's hope we don't repeat, have a repeat of that. Yeah. It's interesting to me. And that stuff is obviously coming to the U.S. Eventually. Uh, yeah. Eventually. Right. We just kind of lag Europe, but I, I think it's a little bit like farrowing or a gestation, free, free, free access gestation versus versus fully created gestation, right? We are going to complain and moan, and then we'll figure out how to do it if we have. Um, and I think that's where the euros are at today, right? They're like, oh, we got to figure out how to do this. And that's what was nerve wracking to me was but when I went there, I knew freedom farrowing was something that was occurring, or we'll just call it open pen. Sal turns around, she can do what she wants. I knew that was a thing, but when I saw how big of a thing it really was at a trade show. I mean, it dwarfed anything else. Sensors, computer, everything else was dwarfed by this right now. And that was when it, to me, said, okay, we're, we're on a 15 to 20 year time frame at least here. This, it's coming. It's coming. When it was as big of a deal as it was there, it's coming. 
And I think the challenge with it, can we make it work? Sure. We're, we're, we got smart people and pigs. I mean, we'll figure it out. I think the challenge with it is, is that it's kind of one of those running into multiple things at the same time. Here, we're going to put this freedom farrowing in or free access farrowing. And yet we've got labor shortages. And the only way you make that pen stuff work is, is a lot more labor. Yep. Um, I, I find it interesting how we get anthropomorphic about, um, welfare. I'll put that in quotes. Um, right. I mean, we know pre, even in the best managed situations, those free access things have higher piglet mortality. I've always kind of said death is a bad welfare outcome. Um, you know, I'm not real keen on the idea of dead. Uh, but, um, <laughs> and I don't mean that from a produ- purely production standpoint, right? I mean, like, uh, can we make up for, I mean, let's just be clear on the reality. If everybody has to do it and premium mortality is 25% because that's what it is, and everybody has 25% premium mortality, it's not an issue because we'll pass that cost onto the industry, right? If some have to do it, it's a problem. But I think the challenge becomes what's it really do to welfare of those piglets if we double mortality? It's a bit like pen gestation, right? We put sows in yeah. pens and some mortality has gone up in some case and in, in, in some situations that are not going well. And is that better welfare or not? It looks better. I get that. I mean, it, it's pleasant to go into pen gestation, right? Those yep. sows look comfortable. But if you look at sow mortality going up in those, ah, is that really better welfare? And I think those are the discussions. We kind of get the cart ahead of the horse and we say, oh, this is what we should do because it looks good. But we don't really ask the holistic question is, is there really a way to manage welfare in a better manner? Yeah. And so it's kind of add on that in a, Agree with you, yet push back on how the industry thinks through what looks good. When we were doing all of our presentations around piglet crushing, right? People know what it looks like to have open pen farrowing. They know what it looks like to have crated farrowing. But most people don't know what it looks like for a piglet to die from getting laid on. And when we were doing our presentations, we actually had had found a video of an open dirt lot, hut, Sal lays on a piglet, piglet squeals for eight seconds, and it squeezes out. But when the consumer saw that piglet struggling for its life underneath that sow, we don't want that. We don't want that. That is, it is very important for us to figure out how we don't have that. And so I feel like if the consumer could also see, which it's it's almost impossible to do this tactfully, but if they could actually see what you're talking about around welfare, it isn't great welfare for that piglet if it's suffocating and dying under its mom. And I'd like to, to really say that mortality survivability, it is our greatest opportunity when it comes to everything that the social side of the business is looking for. Having less mortality is better, better welfare. It's more sustainable use of our resources, and it's more profitable for our family operations. Like, that's what the consumer wants. They want family operations to stay in business, they want sustainability, and they want welfare. I mean, well, yeah, yes. doesn't accomplish that. Yeah, and I, I think if you just look at that, right, it's where does the vast majority of mortality occur? It occurs in the first four days of life or whatever, right? If you take the total percentage of mortality, it, it, it's all, it all occurs up front. Yeah. And so how do you, yeah, it's the one big welfare story that we haven't talked about. We don't know how to talk about. I'm not sure how we talk. I don't have any answers to that either, but I agree with you, yeah. right? Like it's a really ugly thing to see a South Russian pig. And so, but I'm not sure also the, con- the <clears throat> consumer, I think it's a hard sell to anyone to it say, is. well, it's 20% versus 10%. 10% of 
10% still die, right? And, and those are the, those yep. are the things, those are all the sticky wickets that you have to work through the discussion. But I think that's what we have to work. I don't have any answers again. That's good. It's just horrible academic. because Run we, your mouth we, without an answer, but. we could be walked backwards right into where maybe ad advocates hope to put us, right? Like, oh, they're at 10, 15. Oh, let's make them do freedom farrowing. It'll cost them a crap load of money. Their mortality will double because they can't staff it 24 seven. And now we've got them right where we can't get them back out. And so it feels like a, a lose lose sometimes. I mean, they've even got sows going outdoors. These styles, like there's outdoor, like they go from the freedom crate and then they walk out a little doggy door and then they're outside. It's like, I don't, I, it, <laughs> I can show you some drawings from the seventies, but that was the cutting edge stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's plenty of barns that were designed that way. I mean, it was the sixties. I mean, they were old, right? Like they're older than me, but, um, you look at that, that was the thing, right? That, oh yeah, we put a little dog, we put a little paddock outside. You know, we used to do that in the Midwest. We had these lovely turnout fairing, these pull together fairing houses. You put the sow in, in a crate, in a wooden crate. Yes. And then you let her out twice a day so she'd go eat out in a little lot in front of the pull together, right? And that was the thing. Yep. I did that know, with my grandpa. I know exactly yeah, what you're you talking about. You know what I'm talking Yeah, yeah. Those were a thing. Those went away for a reason. Uh, they, cause they weren't good, right? But. Then they went to this, oh, we could just put a fairing crate and then there's a doggy door and then go outside because they still needed to be outside and eat, right? It was the same idea. But, I mean, that is, um, sometimes those are stupid ideas for a reason and they went away. And so I'm yeah. not, you know, it's interesting, right? We just like tie wits. We just keep going back to the same, same discussion. But yeah, I, I think we have a gap as the industry, right? I understand why companies are out building freedom farrowing because, well, Somebody said we should do that. It's a bunch of metal. We get a lot of people that weld metal together and bend metal and weld it together and they can sell it. Great. I, I mean, that that bit of capitalism works though, right? Yep. I think the question is, is have we had the really right discussions around what's the right approach to housing a sow that optimizes welfare for her and her pigs? And we just kind of jump to the, well, we're going to put them in a box with rails on the side and feed them and hope it doesn't go bad. And if you staff it, 74 hours a day. Right. And so, you know, I think those are the gaps. Those are the, those are our opportunities and we're smart. We'll figure it out. Um, probably when we're forced to in the U S you know, right. We can't forget yeah. there's a bunch of subsidies that go on in Europe. And so sometimes we do things because we get paid to do them, not because they are, they're getting paid to do it. I mean, that's right. And so if you're getting paid, well get right. Paid yeah. yeah I'm take the money. Right. I mean, that's, that's, I'm not begrudging anybody, but sometimes that, when you, when there's those false incentives to put things in place, we don't always work out all the kinks. And so we don't get paid. We're going to work out the kinks and I'm glad I'm old. That's all I can say. <laughs> so speaking of housing, let's, uh, let's swing the completely other direction. We'll go hogs and hotels, China. What mm. are you seeing in China? How, how are things evolving? Well, I think the big interesting thing in China, right, is I no, nobody's been. I'm in China since 2019, I guess, but um, it's uh, as many others haven't, right? So it's been a bit of a black hole over there in terms of direct information. But yeah, I I, I think the big interesting thing to me there is really what are they going to do for demand? I obviously don't watch the demand every day, but right, that thing's been pretty violent in terms of the amount of pork U.S. pork they're buying amount of beans they're buying, amount of corn they're importing from the U.S., and then what's going on in South America and, and what are they going to pull. And so I think all that's pretty interesting as we think about um, 
And then all this, all this COVID rest, unrest. Yeah. That's, that's the other bit that's a bit interesting. But how does all that come together? What impact does that have? Right. We're exporting what 30 ish percent of the value of our product today. Um, you know, that's a pretty big chunk. If you think about supply and demand elasticity and price elasticity with those that, you know, we lose 10, 10%, that's a pretty violent price move. Uh, what's it going to do to, I, I mean, I, I think I'm really more worried about what's it going to do to corn price if they get in or get out of the corn market. Yeah. And we're going to fundamentally shift this corn thing. And then you've got, you know, really soy demand and what's going to happen with, with, um, they can't grow, but they really can't grow much in China, right? It's not a very no northern China. For, no, no, they're actually one of the largest corn producers in the world. They do but it can they get much bigger than what they are today, or do you think there's a lot of opportunity to grow beyond where they're already at? Well, I think um, they're going to have to get a lot more organized. Okay. Um, could they do it? Yeah, I think that's why all this other stuff that's on the side is pretty interesting. I mean, they've clearly industrialized the pig industry. They've not industrialized corn farming. Um, a lot of that's still hand-dried. It's moved around in bags, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still a tremendous amount of their corn that's produced literally by hand. Uh, you know, very small farmers moved to village, picked in years, then shelled. I mean, straight out of 1930 Crazy. here in the – yeah. And so is that land configured so you could run big scale equipment over it? Absolutely. It's just fields that are chopped up in little pieces today, but that, you know, right. There's probably social structure there. That's more important than ag structure. I mean, they're smart enough to buy us equipment. Yeah. I mean, drive a shiny green dragon like we can. I mean, we never drive them anymore. Right. You just push the button and it goes, but um, could they industrialize? Yes. Could they, work through that. Yeah, but that's some social structure issue. What do you do with all those villages and the people that raise, you know, that they can't handle those. So if we've got global slowdown and they're going to export more, you won't see more movement to the cities. Is that going to prolong their transition to really modern agriculture on the crop side, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got Brazil now exporting corn in there. So is that going to be a major competition for us on yeah. the ex on the export front? Right. I mean, I'm, and, and again, those are better questions for an ag economist. But I think that as we think about that, those are really interesting ideas. I can't believe that a 26-story, 1 million pig a year building um, is going to be anything other than a disaster over time, particularly from an environmental standpoint, right? But And they're putting them right in the ports, too, which I found to be very interesting. Like, their whole concept is we'll build it in the port and we'll load the pigs up right on the boat and, like... They're they're making it very close to everything. Well, and they're trying to get, I think the driver there is, right, they're still a wet market on a huge percentage of their meat. And so, you know, that the one that's been on recently, right, they're actually going to slaughter those pigs on the, on the first floor. The first floor is a slaughter plant. And so the idea is, right, hey, we can roll carcasses out of there to the wet market every day without having a lot of, a lot of issues in there. I think that's the COVID lesson because when they, they, you know, right, they build a lot in the West and the North, uh, Inner, Inner Mongolia, uh, Henan province, right? There's been huge numbers of large commercial operations built there. Well, when they had COVID and they wouldn't let people move stuff, they had all this pork where there aren't very many people. And then they didn't have, didn't have pork in the cities because they weren't letting them move, or I guess not COVID, African spine fever, and then COVID messed that up as well. 
And so they said, ah, we need to go back to producing the pork where the people are, which is what they've historically has done. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just don't, you look at that and you say, okay, maybe I'm dumb, but I don't know how that works from a disease, but the disease is what disease is, says by the veterinarian. But you just look at the environmental impact. I mean, the U.S. works because we take manure and we put it back on dirt and we raise corn with it, right? It, it, it's that carbon cycle that we use that really makes that work economically. And if they're just going to put that, process it and put it in the, in the port, I'm suspicious they put it next to the port because that's the easiest spot to get rid of the water. Well, I think they said they were going to mix it into uh, the the human waste, yeah. right? And then process it the same as everything yes. else, which, which is interesting. I mean, but if you think about a lot that, of waste. It's a lot of carbon and a lot of nitrogen that isn't getting recycled, right? Which means is that sustainable and maybe they don't care. Yeah. But, but from a cost standpoint, it's not very sustainable. Yeah. Because if, right, if we're digging digging rocks out of the ground to raise corn in Brazil to haul the, the, the minerals to China, the, some of that put into pork muscle and the rest of it end up back in the ocean. From, yeah. a, co- right, from a cost strike, even see, and I think about sustainability, right? I, I really like McDonald's version of sustainability, which is to be able to do tomorrow what we're doing today, which is can we sell hamburgers tomorrow? And so that's a whole fleet of things around the corner, right? Like, oh, what do we have to do? Well, part of that is sustainability means it also has to be economically sustainable, not just environmentally sustainable. And those two things go together tightly. Yeah. And so you look at these towers and you say, okay, they can put it through human waste treat plants and then put it in the ocean and it's environmentally compliant, put full in air quotes there. But just the loss of carbon, phosphorus, potassium, and nitrogen in that system is probably so great that cost structure wise long term it just the corn's gonna get a lot more expensive. Good point. So how does how does Argentina factor into all of this with what they're doing with soy? Well I think the the driver there is right so you got a couple of three players in soy and one of those obviously Brazil and the US are the two big boys then you've got Argentina playing in there but they're working on this soy dollar right now which is they're changing the exchange rate to get farmers to sell soybeans so they can export them because the Argentinian government needs money and they tax exporting soybeans fairly heavily, apparently. So they need money, okay. so they're going to change the exchange rate so make it very favorable for farmers to export. So they're going to pull a lot of beans into the market, which theoretically should lower our exports into China. Uh, and so you've seen some you know, bouncing around on the, on the, on the soy market. I think the bigger story on soy and everybody keeps talking about, ah, soy price is high because we're exporting to China. And what's the China demand going to do? What we're not talking about is this biofuels mandate. Yes. Um, and what's that going to do to soybean demand here in the U S and I, we got five or six plants in Iowa, Iowa, Minnesota, Minnesota, South Dakota going in. We got a plant here north of Champaign that they're going to triple the size of. You know, those things have real implications on basis for soybeans. Yeah. Probably also implications on soybean meal basis. But I think the bigger question is, what's it going to do to corn acres? Um, if soybeans become crazy profitable all of a sudden because of increased... Yeah, then your demand. corn's gone, right? It, yeah, I mean, then the, that's exactly right. We've got so many acres, acres, right? Yeah, yeah, and, so I, and again, I don't know how all that plays out, but I think those are the interesting things to me looking at that going... And I'm just looking at our region here, and we're Illinois is the biggest soybean state in the country, but it's basically a corn soy rotation for our soils that really works good. Um, 
And so if you're going to triple the amount of soybeans in a plant or the town, that'll, now I've got Staley ADM and this plant up in Gilman that are all the same size, all within an hour and a half of each other. And so you just look at the basis demand, right? I mean, you say, well, there's going to be a lot of soybean meal, and we're going to do with all that. Um, but it, it, I think you could have some shocks through on the corn side and what's local corn base is going to look like. And if you think about those plants out west, there's a lot of pigs out there right now. And is that going to shift some acres away from corn? Is that going to have implications on corn basis? And what does that mean for us in the pig, in the pig industry? And um, maybe nothing at the end of the day, but I think certainly uh, short term, the Argentinians are going to push down bean prices, which is probably going to incent more corn, which is probably good. Um, but long term, you start looking at that saying, mm, are, there, are there these other players in the world that are going to really – really monkey with our our feedstock availability yeah because i mean there's those alternative fuels that are pushing the soy but there's also a huge push with alternative fuels pushing corn too and so there's this going to be this battle for acres and, and what's actually reasonable and then to shift a little bit here over to mexico it seems like they're they're actually growing their sow herd quite a bit and if they're growing their sow herd quite a bit big enough that it might actually impact what they import from the U.S. Like, I guess how much does Mexico have to grow, do you think, before it impacts what they what we can export there? Well, I think it's a – I think when we think about meat exporting, we tend to think about a whole pig, and, you know, there's 300 and some odd or 900 and some odd. It's a ridiculous number of parts that we can sell out of a pig, right? So yeah. when I think about harvesting, it's right. It's disassembly, not assembly. So if I'm selling a car, I buy a whole bunch of parts, put them together, and sell you a product. I sell you a Chevrolet. But in a pig, I buy a pig, and then I sell out of that a huge number of SKUs. And so a lot of our exporting, and the U.S. imports a fair amount of pork as well, because we don't make enough things like bellies, because we eat a lot of belly. But globally, we don't, that's not as big a product. And so we tend to pull some belly in so we can eat bacon to meet our dietary needs. And so I think the question is going to be is, right, Mexico imports a huge amount of ham. Uh, pigs only got two legs. So yeah. are they going to, right? I mean, as they increase production, they're going to meet their own ham need or they're going to continue to pull hams in from the U.S. because that's the skews they need and they're going to export parts they don't need. And I think it's that balancing. And I think, I'm talking way out over my skis here because I don't understand that except a bit that thought about it. When we think about it very simply of, hey, I'm going to make a pig. I'm going to sell that pig. I'm not selling a pig. The packer isn't selling a pig. The meatheads are selling a lot of parts. Yes. And the grocery store has more than that because they don't even sell pork chops as one item, right? There's a whole loin. There's parts of loins. There's loin chops. There's rib chops. There's two packs. There's family packs, right? And all those things fit in their product mix that they're going to merchandise. And so I think as Mexico comes on, does it make sense they're going to export? Yeah, because they're probably going to have easier exporting than some of the crazy stuff we do in terms of politics, um, particularly thinking about exporting into Asia, right? They're, they're probably more friendly with some of those countries, or at least it'll be less crazy than we are. But by the same token, they're going to have to continue to import corn. And so you start to look at that and you say – you know, it's uh, we've had these long discussions in the cattle business about probably doesn't matter how many feedlots you own, it's how many mama cows can you control. You know, right? The pig industry we used to sell feeder pigs and wean pigs, and we've all you know we've aligned today. But the really big alignment started. We went from 
people that bought feeder pigs and people that had sows and this trade of all those animals just saying, no, we're going to go to farrow to finish. And now we've integrated into the yeah that piece, right? But as you think about it, the U.S. industry, think globally, the industry, we, we supply our own corn, right? We don't bring corn. We bring, we have our own base ingredients. We, have, we convert that into pork. And so um, we still win in that standpoint unless it gets used up for everything else. So right. if we're exporting the corn to Mexico, um, I don't know what that says for U.S. pork producers, but U.S. ag still is going to win, right? Because we don't have the cost of the rail and you yeah. know, blah, blah, blah to get corn here. Um, is there going to be shifts, you know, right? Weather pattern shifts and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Maybe we're raising pigs today. We lose some of that because, you know, if you look at the Southwest today, those guys feeding cattle have always had super cheap corn in the panhandle. That is no longer... That's not the case, right? They're paying a lot more than we are for corn. And so, yeah, there's some shifts here that could change that. But I think if you think about that, competitively, U.S. agriculture is still in a really good place. U.S. pig producers are still in a good place because, you know, when you put the corn outside the door and you put the poop on the ground and you put the corn back into the pigs, it just works. That's going to win long term uh, from a cost standpoint. Yep. So we're thinking about supply chains here. Do you think globalization is changing, has changed? Where do you think that's going? I've been doing a bunch of reading on that because I find this stuff interesting. Um, I've always found economics, like particularly macroeconomics, interesting. And so Mohammed Al-Aryan, who's the famous investor at PIMCO and is now president of one of the schools at Queens College London, um, he's an interesting dude, right? I mean, he's an economist and has thought a lot. And he's really arguing today that we've seen a fun, we don't, we're not just going through business cycles. We've seen this fundamental shift post COVID with, you know, loose money. And we, we, you know, in this period of loose money and mass globalization, and we move stuff all over the place and yada, yada, yada. And now we went into this post COVID era with a war thrown on top of that. And his case is, is that this isn't a business. Like we're seeing a fundamental shift. So we're going to see a long period of tight money. So it's not going to be as cheap to borrow, which is going to have big, and think about ag, right? We live off borrowing. It's capital intensive industry. We borrow lots and lots and lots of money. And so, you know, a half million dollar tractor or a $3 million hog barn got a lot more expensive. Yeah. Um, So what does that do to us? What operating loans look like? What implications does that have? There's this nearshoring thing that everybody's nervous about buying stuff from China and everywhere else, right? We can't get Ivaco. Heaven forbid we're not going to buy phones for Christmas because China can't get five. Uh, right? I mean, and so can't we laugh, right? But but it and it's kind of funny, and we like to make fun of that stuff. But it's a real deal that it is because it, it, we're a big exporting country as well, particularly on the ag side, right? So what what happens, and do those commodities flow around? And then what are we going to do with labor? And is this gross labor shortage? His argument is is that we are now in a supply side constriction. Um, not a demand side constriction. So we've always, you know, kind of gone through periods where we had low demand and we would try to stimulate demand. He's arguing that our challenge now is going to be supply. And I think that's an interesting bit. It's a pretty good position if you're a commodity producer, um, right? Because we are in a good position to supply and which would suggest that prices are going to be high for commodities. Yeah. Um, but I think the game that we thought we were going to play over the last, 20 years is going to get real different again. Um, if you kind of read all this stuff. And I think those are, those are interesting pieces is, is Europe. I mean, I think it's going to be fascinating to see is Europe going to ban imports of sows that don't come out of freedom fairway. Yeah. Are they going to not import meat if it doesn't come out of freedom fairway? 
So what do we? If they don't, if they don't, they're going to look like the UK and not raise any of their own meat. Yeah, and maybe that's what they want, right? I mean, if you look at what's going on in the Netherlands, right? They're going to buy farms for environmental reasons, or spy farms for environmental reasons. So maybe they don't want to make their own meat. Maybe they're going to put it all in Spain or Brazil and not ask a lot of questions. But, but. I think those are the really interesting things of, of has this globalization pattern changed because of everybody's nervous and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So if we're going to successfully adjust to that potential change, where does the leadership need to lie for us to successfully do that? Is that on the integrators, the packers, the owners? Is that within the pork board? Like, where do we need to have a great amount of strength to successfully navigate a change like that? That's hard in a capitalist society where we've said yeah. that you win by having competition. And, and I still think the leadership's going to come from individual organizations that are not following the pack. Okay. And so I look at it and say, we've probably squeezed the turnip as hard as we can squeeze the turnip in the, the kind of conventional improvement. You work in the tech space every day. I'm fascinated by the tech space. I look at it and say, if you look at the other industries, right, we created 25 years ago, Google didn't exist or whatever, right? That wasn't a thing in our lives, right? Which is we crazy. Didn't have, yeah, right. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have yada, 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 right? We, none of that. We had a, you know, we never remote control on the TV at one point, you know, right? But and I can remember that. That wasn't like we had a knob you turned on the TV, right? And, and, and so, yes, the world is changing. And I don't want to sound like you're across the old man, but the pig industry really hasn't adopted technology yet. No. We have mechanized all of that. I mean, the crop boys are getting there and they're getting there fairly rapidly. But the but the but the livestock side, we really haven't done tech yet. We've mechanized and we've hyper mechanized and the technology we've employed has been primarily genetic, right? If you look at what we're doing genetically, I mean yeah. it's fascinating technology there. But yeah. operationally, we're in the dark ages. Yeah, yeah. Operate I mean, when we look at nutrition, genetics, maybe even housing. We're pretty, we're pretty good. But when we think about operational excellence, labor, care, the digitization of, of knowing what's happening in our operations, like dairy's way beyond. Yes. And yeah. we, we're just not there. Yeah. We don't even do supply chain management. I mean, Walmart's been tracking stuff through the supply chain with a high degree of precision for 25 years. And we don't know how many pigs we have. So what can we learn, especially what can we learn from maybe even Walmart, right? I mean, to bring it all the way back home, how does vertical integration potentially even change in the swine world based on what we're seeing in other animal ag? Yeah, I I think animal ag generally is a follow the, follow the, it's a flock thing. You move as a herd and there is very little incentive to get different. And there have been periods where getting different was important, right? So I look at what's happened in, we scaled in swine production because of a business model, contract production. We went to contract production and those who adopted contract production now own the industry. And those that didn't adopt contract production are no longer participating. Yep. 
because of the capital requirements, right? So those that figured it out, and, and you've got some variants of that. You've got the Pipestone car, the JMVC model, where they pooled their sows and reverse contract production, but they basically contracted sow production. But it's still saying, listen, we're gonna we're gonna lever resources, bring capital to business. Yep. And so that was a key part, right? That was a key innovation. So those guys got different. So to me, it's going to be who's going to figure out and who's going to step out and say, how do we integrate the supply chain? And is that start with an Australian model where Walmart leads that charge and says, we're going to beat the cost out of this system? It's commodity business, cost game. I mean, it's just, it's it's scale yeah. and cost win, right? Like, and, this and is I- not... And I'm sure listeners have no clue what Walmart, uh, a lot of them have no clue what Walmart is doing. Can you do like at least a, a 60 second blip on what is Walmart doing in the beef space? Yeah. That's uh, fascinating. It's really fascinating. So Walmart, largest beef purchaser, muscle cut beef purchaser and ground meat purchaser. Well, I don't know about ground meat. Largest muscle cut purchaser in the U.S. and one of the top two or three on ground meat. So we think about beef in two buckets, muscle and ground. And so um, Walmart said, listen, we don't have control over our supply chain and we can't get what we need to sell steaks. And they view that they need red meat in the store to be successful as a grocer, as a merchant grocer. And they said, we can't get what we want because the supply chain isn't getting what we need. It's really around the ribeye and that we make, just like we make pigs, they're making steers so dang big because it works on the operation side and it works on the packing side. The steak is too big around and not thick enough to sell at the right price and the right weight. So, they said, we're going to take control of the supply chain. And so they are out and they are contracting with cow-calf producers to buy calves of a specified genetic. So they're working with 44 farms, which is an Angus farm out of, out of Texas. Um, so they're using black cattle. Uh, they buy those calves on their specified program. So there's genetics, health, et cetera, backrunning program. They feed those cattle in feed yards across really the, the middle part of the country, so from the Panhandle into Nebraska. And then those cattle come back to a single packing plant where they're harvested. Um, and then that meat goes to uh, a case-ready plant that Walmart has in Georgia. And it's feeding about 20% of their or 15% of their stores today. And so they've just said, listen, we're going we're gonna to own the supply chain. This is ridiculous. We can't get what we want. I think what's interesting out of that, and then they subsequently made an investment in that packing plant in Nebraska because they can't get enough through their current packing plant. So, you know, in, in Walmart's big company, like 500 million is, they have to think, they have to think about it, but 500 million, like, they just write a check for that. It's like me saying they need 20 bucks. It's crazy. I'm going to think about giving you 20 bucks, but eh, 500 million, no bigs. We, we, we got that. We got that in our pocket today. And so, they they looked at that and said, we have to integrate that supply chain because it's so critical. Their goal isn't to make any money feeding cattle. No. Their, their goal is to make sure that they have two steaks that they can sell at the right price in the store so that they're credible because red meat sales drive sales of everything else in the grocery. Oh, if you walk, in, you walk into a grocery store, the number they'll tell you is people that buy red meat spend $70 more than people that don't buy red meat. Really? And guess where they wow. make money at? It's the other $70 worth of stuff. <laughs> and so yeah. it's them understanding consumer behavior, right? I think that's the really interesting part to me that they've taken this data and they got different than the other retailers. Sam Walton said, we're going to be different. He was very much about service, but really that wasn't the advance. The advance was we're going to use information to drive sales. We're yeah, gonna the service part's gone now. If we're at Walmart, the service part is gone. <clears throat> 
That's what they originally did, right? I mean, yep. they said, hey, we're just going to out-service customers. And servicing customers, we had what they wanted when they wanted it. And yes. that naturally led to the um, bit of, hey, we need to control our supply chain better. So they started the, the distribution centers, and they started tracking. They were early in the mainframe computer thing, right? And they, they worked through all that. So they got real different. Now the natural evolution is they're just saying, listen, this is a supply chain we can't control. We're going to control it. You know, they control their great value brand supply chains all the time. Oh, yeah. Right? What, 30 or 40% of the stuff in the store anymore is, I'm making a number up, but if you walk down the aisle, it seems like, you know, half of it is their brand product, house brand. And so they're just saying, we're going to make, we're going to make beef a house brand. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I went through a couple different tours and let's say like pickles and other, other stuff. And yeah, it's the same thing. Yes. I mean, it's the exact same thing, which is their label on it. They're they're doing such an incredible job of using everybody else's resources to produce their own low cost product. That's right, and making a lot more money on it because they don't advertise it. Yeah, and and I think what they're saying the beef side is is listen if we can get and their goal I think is thirty percent. If we can get to thirty percent of our product internal, we think there's enough other product in the existing chain to meet our needs. Yeah. We can go skim enough from the big four on the beef side to meet our needs and still meet our specs. Now, if I was one of the big four, I don't know if I'd be real comfortable with that idea. Yeah. So Tyson, National, Cargill, and, and um, JBS. Biggest buyer in the country saying, yeah, we're going to get in your business, kids. Things are changing. Yep. Hello. But I, mean, I think that's what's going to come on. And, and I don't know where that innovation comes from, but you look at you know, firms that have really good relationships with retailers, is that where the innovation starts? Or is it retailers that don't have any relationship with packers that they go out and start doing their own thing? Right? So you would say Country View has got really tight relationships, or Clemens has got really tight relationships in the Northeast. Yeah, like Wendy's and those groups. Yeah, yeah. Okay, is that where the innovation starts because there's a deep relationship? Or is the innovation on supply chain start with somebody who's just like, uh, I don't have any control. I got to fix this. I have no one. <clears throat> I have no one. I have to fix this. And it comes down the pike that way. I don't know. But th- that's the exciting bit to me to say, how do we coordinate the supply chain? How do we coordinate management? How do we leverage technology to strip cost out? Because that's really what we're talking about doing. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. Because when you look oh. at the people who produce and supply to Walmart, they're big. When you look at the producers who supply to Costco, they're big. Yeah, yep. Costco and Walmart both said we're going to take supply chain into our own hands, keep costs That's low. Right. That's right. So it 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 might be that two big of companies are working together, and so you're not really gaining much traction. It, it might that might be an opportunity for smaller groups like Country View, uh, who isn't really small anymore. But no, no, no. But it, I think those will be the interesting. Yeah. If you look at where so. There's a guy named Goldratt that does a whole bunch of stuff on theory constraints. And I, I find his stuff. I teach a couple of classes that is really interesting stuff. And the, the goal is kind of the classic book there. But if you look at where he talks about supply chain management, he would argue that the biggest losses in the supply chain are discounting. Because I have product that I can't get rid of and I have to sell cheap. And the clothing industry is a really interesting parallel to, to meat production. The cycle in clothing is about a year. So they're going to plan their designs 
or next oh, fall, yes. this fall, right? Then you yes. got to dye the fabric, then you have to sew the stuff up, and then you have to get it delivered. So they make these huge orders, huge batches of clothes, so that they can beat down the cost of making the batch of clothes, and then they put those in the stores. And then they don't have enough, then they have to sell it to their discounter at the end or put it on sale at the end because they missed, right? So they think about things that are fast runners and slow runners, and the fast runners go out. So I needed that that shirt. I love that plaid shirt in a large, and it gets sold out. And all of a sudden, I've got smalls and extra larges, but I don't have any larges, and so I have to discount the stuff on both ends. And if you look at the closing business, all the loss is because of discounting. Well, think about the pig business. We do that every day. And yeah. we're selling dollar seventy nine pork loins, and you figure out what it costs to make the pork loin is more than a dollar seventy nine. Yeah. And so we're discounting that because we gotta move product. And so those are the gaps. And it's a tricky thing because we're not bringing things together. It's not like a shirt where I can print make a bunch of clothing and then decide what sizes to sew up later. That's a late differentiation strategy. I got a pig that mm, I got to figure out how to fabricate that thing. And so it, there's some tweaks I can do, but I can't just do that completely. So it's it's not a perfect translation, but it's that bit of integration that we waste a lot of money after that pig walks onto the kill. Because Absolutely. we don't have we say we're going to run that kill plant at maximum throttle. We're going to run a finishing barn at maximum throttle. But yet we don't always have a market for that pig, but we're going to kill it anyway. Because we have to. And so, and chop it up. But what do we have to do? Freeze it? Well, then we got to sell it on a discount and we got it right. I mean, just look at market price over a year. We've got times the year we have excess supply. And so, I think if we think about where does technology fit, it's how do we start to control the production process well enough? This doesn't work if I can't control production. Yeah. If I don't have consistency, consistency over production, and then I can start to turn the knob on and off. I really have to understand the human behavior and the pig behavior of what drives conception rate and total board, the fecundity, how many pigs per service. And if I understand that and I can manipulate that controlling in a way that I can predict what's going to happen, now I can turn that knob on and off to say, how many pigs do I need at the end? Yes. But until I work out the real bits, I mean, that's not what we do today in ag. We like, I don't know, we breed them and hope. Yeah. And we're in some farms are better at the hoping than the others, right? I yes, mean, the hope yes, is higher yes. than others, but, and, I, and I'm not picking on the industry, but like, if you look at other manufacturing, that's not how they work. There's a lot more control at the beginning of that process. And so I think those are the opportunities for us. And as I see the progression, yes, we can use fancy machine learning and we've done some space in there and we can predict what's going to happen. And that's all great. But until we get control of that process, really at the bringing floor, the rest of it kind of just it happens. Is. It is. But if I get control of the process of the breeding farm, now I can start to work my way down the path of, okay, can we turn the machine on and off to optimize products so I don't have waste, I don't have to discount? And that's where we're going to squeeze value out of the chain. And I think where we get burned sometimes is we need to be more consistent. We need to have more predictable production, but we have a biological challenge, right? We have an animal and people interacting with that animal. And so it's not as easy as a widget in and out of a manufacturing plant. It, it's more complex. And I think we've underappreciated how difficult it really is to drive consistent production in an environment where it's about throughput, but we got to provide care. And if that care is inconsistent, that throughput is no longer predictable. 
Yeah, I, and I think we spent a lot of time. We're pig people. We spent a lot of time focusing on pigs. Uh huh. And we forgot about the two-legged stuff. Yep. You know, right? Everybody asks. I work with veterinary students every day anymore, right? And they're like, well, what's the biggest disease challenge? I said, it's all two-legged. It's never four-legged disease. It's always two-legged disease. And then if we don't fix the people, the the pigs will take care of themselves. The calves will take care of themselves. It's really, we have breakdowns because we don't get the people organized. We don't have people trained. We don't have people motivated, which I think is a bigger issue than training. We don't give them feedback. We don't yada, yada, yada. Right. But that that to me is the untapped bit of control and it's how do we really improve that and we talk a lot about that but what have we done about it it's going to be our limiting factor until we address it it's going to always limit our ability to do anything and once we address it i think we'll see the next wave of growth in our industry the next wave of improvement we either have to address it and fix it or eliminate it yeah which i don't think we've all agreed on no, 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 but no, and I don't think that's possible, right? But I've said to, yeah. I've said to our friends at genetic companies, right? I've said, guys, I don't need a sow that has 17 pigs. I need a sow that's going to have, if she has 12, if she can wean 12, I need to just exactly have 12, yeah. take no care, and wean 12. Yes. Yep. And they're like, well, well that doesn't work. I'm like, well, we kind of figured that out on the cow side, guys. And so there is, with intensive selection on that, right, on the cow side, we used to pull all the calves. We don't pull calves anymore. Calves hit the ground on their own. They pop up because they've selected for that. And it's really important in the cow. It's a key economic driver in the cow business, right? Like, what's yeah, the yeah, yield yeah. of calves, right? And so there's been a big economic incentive. But there's some things we can do on the pig side. We're never going to get where they're on the cows because it's litter pairing. But we got to work on there's there's pieces there we have to work on if we're going to be successful particularly the the two-legged stuff well this has been fascinating and i appreciate you being a guest on the popular pig podcast before we wrap up i always like to ask if you have a golden nugget for listeners a bit of wisdom that you'd like to leave behind not doesn't have to be related to swine it could be anything in life yeah i i to me the one is don't make it hard and it has to be uh, and, and I think we all get sucked into looking at things and trying to make it complex. And often just a little bit of common sense gets you around there. If you back up for a minute and say, hey, this this can't be that the, the simplest solution is the best, right? That's Occam's razor. And I, and I think really applying that, and that's hard to do day to day, but I think that's the... That's been really successful for me, particularly on pig farms. Like, no, 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 this can't be that complicated. It, it's just slow down and think and and um and don't make it harder than it has to awesome keep it simple and thanks for joining us to talk about globalization global affairs supply chain and integration we really appreciate you taking the time and uh thank you enjoyed it matthew thanks thank you for joining us on this episode of popular pig We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. 